Well, um, we're starting back in on the book of Romans this morning, obviously, and we were in Romans prior to Advent, the season before Christmas, and then we took a little bit of a break. Now we're coming back in, so if you're new this morning, you're kind of coming in midstream, we're working at Romans 12, so feel free to have that open. And just the first two verses, I'll look at the, I'll take us through the rest of the chapter next week, and part of the reason for that was, um, it's so densely packed, Romans 12, these two verses are really packed. Um, you probably memorized them at one point in your life. This is that do not be conformed, but be transformed verse. So you probably memorized that at one point. Uh, The other reason I wanted to look at just those verses is there's a question that Paul poses in here that is a question I hear all the time as a pastor, and maybe you hear too. Uh, And it's this question, how can I know God's will for my life? Have you ever asked that question? Like, how can I know God's will? Any of you? I mean, because we can make this a really short sermon. Okay, good. Uh, Either it's a situation, a relationship, a decision you need to make. Um, Our lives are filled with many decisions every day, all the time, opportunities that aren't aren't exactly clear to us. And so we ask ask people, ask God, what's your will? And it could be a question around your career right now. You're, You're in a new year. Are you in the right place doing the right thing? Or is there a need for a change? Could be a relationship and who you're supposed to spend your life with. You know, you ask, some of you ask that question once upon a time. Some of you are even asking right now, is there someone? Is there anyone? Um, it could be money, save, spend, invest, give away. It could be time. I, we invited you to do some things this morning. You're asking yourself, do I have time to spend on those things? Or your kids, like, if you should have kids, how many kids? Maybe we should stop. <laughs> I've got enough. Um, serving in my church or somewhere else. Retirement. When? Uh, what? What will I, like some of you have even told me that are at their age, what am I doing? What am I going to do with the rest of my life? I've got 25, 30, 40 years left. What's God's will for the rest of my life? So many questions. And sometimes those are years out. Sometimes those are within the next several minutes. Um, Where am I going to go to breakfast or brunch after church? What's your will, God? Um, And it's no surprise that so many of us are so desperate for God because we just have no idea what to do next. How can we know God's will? As Paul says in Romans 12 in the NIV, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. There's something good and pleasing and perfect about it. Well, so I have good news and bad news for you this morning. Here's the good news, or here's the bad news. You're asking the wrong question. At least it's the wrong approach to the question. I've, I've made the same approach. God, what's your will? As if there's like some singular will for God, you know, which leads to the good news. Um, it's actually really an easier answer than you might think to that question. And here's what I mean by that. I once read that um, 90% of God's will for your life is the same as 90% of God's will for my life. So if there's a Venn diagram, my life, your life, you just lay them on top of each other, they're nearly exactly the same. And that's called the 90-10 rule, and it's this, it's this idea taken from a, choke, uh, a quote by Chuck Swindoll where he said, life is 10% of what happens to us, 90% of how we react to it. 10% of what happens to us, 90% of how we react to it. Here's the full quote. He says, attitude is more important than facts. It's more important than the past, your education, money, circumstances, failures or success, what other people think of you, say or do. It's more important than appearance, ability, skill. It's more, it will make or break a business, a home, a friendship, or an organization. And he says, the remarkable thing about attitude is I have a choice every day of what my attitude will be. Because the truth is, I cannot change my past. I cannot change the actions of others. I cannot change the future. The only thing I can change is my attitude. And then he finishes that quote by saying, life is 10% 
what happens in 90% of how I react or respond. So do you see it? The 90% of my life and your life, of the so-called will of God for my life, is about your attitude. It's about response. And only 10% of it, 10%, a very minimal amount, is a circumstance or a situation or what we think of as the will of God, the very particulars of our lives. And those particulars, let me just take a real quick moment to say this, are really important. I think God cares about, he says in, in Jeremiah 29, he cares about his plans for our lives. He has plans. And he wants to use our gifts and shape us. And he gives us people and places to, to live with. And that's the uh, implication of the incarnation, that Jesus lived in a place and a time, and so do you, and that's important. But more important than, than the circumstances of your life is, is how you choose to respond to those circumstances. Because they come and they go. They do. And they're good and they're bad. Will your response be with fear or gratitude? Will it be with control, a need for control, as mine often is, or just bold faith? Which will it be? Now, having said that, Romans 12, 1 and 2, with that in view, we are invited this morning as a community to notice the attitudes that are characteristic of Christ's followers. There's a few attitudes in here. And if we possess them, those are going to give us a clear view of God's will for our lives. At the very end, Paul says, God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. If we just have the right attitude about what God's doing with us. So I'm going to look at three with you, as, as you guessed. <laughs> Always three. Three attitudes that Paul reveals, or God reveals here in Romans 12. The attitude of possessing a breathtaking view of God's mercy in verse 1a. The attitude of presenting your, our bodies as a living sacrifice in verse 1b. Who knew verses had one A's and B's, right? And then the attitude of letting God remold our lives, okay? <clears throat> so first, the attitude of possessing a breathtaking view of God's mercy. And this is what the NIV says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. And the word translated by here, um, though it's merely just a preposition, is actually the key, as often it is for me, to understanding what Paul's saying. It's a word that is very flexible in the Greek language. It can mean by, through, because of. And oh, actually, I read a different translation. In the NIV, it says in view of, in view of the mercies of God. And I actually like that translation. NIV doesn't always get the, the, the translation right, um, but it's, I think it's right here. Because a view is this breathtaking experience, right? Um, a panorama. Like how many of you, and it fills you with gratitude, right? How many of you have had the experience of flying into SeaTac? You've been away on a business trip or visiting family, and you're flying in as your plane circles the Puget Sound. You see that carpet of green trees. You've been in Texas, <laughs> you know, Southern California, uh, and, and like you see the water and the life below, and perhaps maybe it's a clear day and there's rainier and there's the Olympics, and you're just filled with nothing short of gratitude. Like you're just so grateful you're from or you live in Seattle. That's what Paul's talking about. I want you to understand, he says, the will of God. And if you want that, if you want that deeper, you need a deeper awareness of what God's doing in your life. And you get that through this, having this panoramic, breathtaking spectacular view of God's mercies. That's how you get it. And so what does that mean? To, to view God's mercy. Like, what would that look like? And I, see, I'm afraid, I'm already talking about it, but the word mercy around the church, especially coming from pastor types like me, has been just sucked completely dry of its meaning. Like, we say mercy, we say grace, we think things like that, and you're like, what does that mean? Um, it means... I looked it up, to be moved with empathy for the suffering of somebody else. That's what mercy means. To, to kind of hear a tuning for it, to vibrate to somebody else's pain. 
That's, and, to, and then to absorb that pain somehow, okay? Now, because we don't think of the definition when we say the word, to, to kind of help inject the, the meaning back into it, uh, we need to view, like, ask ourselves, what are God's mercies in our lives? See, did you notice this? Paul uses the word mercies in a, as a plural noun, in view of God's mercy. So this is not an abstract virtue. He's talking about distinct things or features of God's mercy that have happened. He, he's naming some things. In fact, if you read Romans 1 to 11 sometime, he's been unfolding God's mercy to you, um, repeatedly pointing back to aspects of God's mercy. And, and specifically in Romans 9, he gives two specific references to God's mercy that give it a structure. And I want to look at those real quick. One involves forgiveness and one generosity, okay? So Romans nine sixteen, where Paul says, this is forgiveness. Salvation does not depend on human desire or effort, but solely on the mercy of God. So if I could put that in a nutshell, forgiveness is a byproduct of mercy. It is. And we'll get to why in a second. And then Romans nine twenty three, he says, God's purpose in history, his singular purpose in history, has been and is to make known the riches of his glory to the objects of his mercy. And so here's the nutshell of that one. Uh, there's an aspect of costly giving to mercy as well. So there's forgiveness and, and generosity. And there's a really poignant example of mercy that brings these two things together in Luke's gospel. Very familiar story of the Good Samaritan. And many of us know this story. This man who's walking down a road, and he's mugged, and he's beaten, and he's robbed, and he's left for dead. And he's passed by several other travelers on that road all of whom either don't have time for him, they don't seem to have time for him, they don't, they're not sure exactly how they can help, there's some prohibitions around even helping in that day. Um, but one, there's a, fourth, or a third traveler who stops, he's a Samaritan man, and he does help the man, right? Which where we get the name of the parable, the Good Samaritan. He comes along, and he gives an enormous amount of help, mercy to this man suffering. Um, he helps heal him, he risks his life for this man. And, and see, the point here is this man's salvation, literally his life is hanging on the line. It's utterly dependent on the help of somebody else. He will die beside the road if somebody does not stop. And so he's saved by this Samaritan. Because you see, uh, Samaritans and Jews in that day, they, they didn't associate. They couldn't. There was like prohibitions against this and customs and animosity between them. And so the Samaritan, he sees the man. Remember my definition of mercy as a tuning fork, he begins to vibrate to the man's pain. He crosses over the road, which is literally a, a road, but also a, a social boundary, and chooses to act in accordance with the, the heart of God, not the regulations and the rules of their society. He crosses a social boundary, okay? And what's more, he expends himself for this man. He, if you know the story and read it sometime, he doesn't just give this man a Band-Aid kit and a water bottle and a bus pass. He doesn't do that. I've done that for people on the side of the road at the freeway overpass. He doesn't do that. He puts him on his donkey. It's like getting him in his car, takes him to a hotel, pays for his doctor, and then stays with him for days, goes away back to his business trip or whatever he was on, and this cost, and comes back. This costs him time, money, it's opportunities. I mean, think about for a moment, put yourself in the shoes of the Samaritan. Where was he, about, where was he going that day? He was traveling. Was he going to to work, to close a business deal, an important deal that day? Was he about to go meet up with his family for dinner, you know, or whatever? Put yourself in his shoes. You have things in your life that are really important to you. Where is the Samaritan going? He had somewhere he was going. Um, 
And see, you can't bear somebody else's burden, which is what part of what mercy means, unless that burden, the inconvenience of that burden, at some part of it falls upon your shoulders. I mean, you have to, you have to shoulder the burden, whether that's physical, financial, emotional, whatever it is, the burden of somebody else for it to be merciful, to show them mercy, has to fall at least in part on you. So you're walking through the SeaTac airport. I described that vista to you, and you're you're flying, you know, you're flying home. Oh, I'm sorry, you've just flown home. See a fellow traveler walking along. Maybe it's a mom with kids, stroller, and a like a hundred pound piece of luggage, you know. You have an opportunity to show mercy by taking the stroller or maybe just carrying the bag and, and, and taking some of that. You might take 20 pounds, 50 pounds, 100 pounds of that bag and say, hey, let me help you carry that for a moment. Um, that's why actually the story of Simon of Cyrene who helped carry the cross of Jesus is such a beautiful portrait of mercy because he essentially does that with Jesus. Hey, let me just help you carry that burden for a few moments. In fact, there's a movement in Northern Ireland I heard about called the Simon Movement, and they address the problem of homelessness in Northern Ireland, by, and their, their, their uh, tagline is sharing the burden. That's what they do. They help share the burden because their approach to ministry is not to say, hey, we're going to um, just give food and shelter to all the homeless. We're going to share the burden of homelessness with these people. We're going to enter into their lives and be merciful. So a merciful person forgives and then also absorbs the cost of whatever it is, no matter the cost, and bears that burden. That's mercy. Now, a quick aside, can you imagine we're a church, if we were a church where 50% of you out there today forgave everybody, you never split the check, I pay, I'm paying. You don't have to Venmo me, don't worry about it. Um, Never ask to be paid back, and you were willing to meet the needs of every person you cross, no matter what the cost was to you. You just, whether that's psychological, physical, spiritual, financial, doesn't matter. You just said, hey, let me help somehow. Can you imagine... If we were that extravagant, what kind of community this community, Lake City, would be? Or our community would be with our internal needs? I mean, it's my... I get really excited about thinking about that. It's it's exciting to think about what kind of a church we could be if we shared the burden like that. Now I hear somebody saying, that's great. I, I, I get excited too, Jack, but you're making me feel kind of guilty right now. Like you're kind of throwing a lot of weight on me. Like, I do ask for people to pay me back. Like... I don't have just infinite amounts of money. And I don't help everybody. I'm, I am that person who doesn't stop when I see the homeless person. Um, I, I feel like I'm carrying all I can carry right now, Jack. I've got three or four kids. I, I've got a full-time job. I've, man, I've got a lot. You don't know my story. And like Lake City, the needs here are just way too great for me. I can't even comprehend homelessness and um, all the things that are happening in here. How, where do we begin? Those are the questions I think I hear in your, your mind. So remember, it's actually in view of God's mercy that we get the energy for this, not in view of the mercy of just other people. And so the answer to us right now is to view the mercies of God. How, how can we respond to God's mercies toward us as individuals and as a community and then move out into our community and each other's lives? That's the beginning. The only reason we will be merciful people The only way we can do that is by continually, constantly looking at the mercies of God and saying, as we reflect on the specific ways, God has shown us his mercy in our lives. So let me ask you this. How has God shown you mercy? Just think of ways that God has 
just been extravagant with you. It carried your burden, um, shown you forgiveness, shown you costly love. There have to be ways. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be here otherwise. Um, Brendan Manning, one of my favorite authors, died a couple years ago, wrote this book toward the end of his life um, where he describes a season in his life where God's mercy penetrated his heart in that way because he hit bottom. This was after years of success. He wrote the Ragamuffin Gospel. He wrote um, that other one. What's the other one? That, uh, he wrote all of those. He wrote a ton of books, right? And spoke, and he was like a prominent. A lot of us love this guy, but he had come to the end of himself because, see, he was a, a recovering alcoholic, lifetime alcoholic, and he dipped whether you know it or not, dipped in and out of alcoholism his whole life, all throughout his career. And he began to recognize within that just his, his character flaws, like he present a certain person to the communities he was speaking to, and behind the scenes he's sarcastic, has this inflated ego. At his speaking engagements, he's bitter toward people. I mean, just constantly struggling. And he says this in this book toward the end of his life, the authenticity of my whole life project seemed doomed. He, he was inauthentic, wasn't really who he was. Until this day when he, he describes how the fierce mercy of God invaded his life. Here's a little quote. He says, The first act of the merciful love of God within me was to shred the illusions and delusions that had led me to deny my own worth and attempt to eliminate the life of the Spirit of God within me. A sort of fierce mercy burst into my consciousness with a feral protectiveness and said, You belong to me and no one will ever snatch you out of my hand. I have changed your name. You will never be called ashamed. You're not guilt-ridden. You're not lonely. You're not much afraid. Your new name is child of mine, broken and beloved, playful one, and joy of my heart. He said that to Brennan Manning. And then Manning says, when, when that fierce mercy transformed my wife, these bewildering words of Julian of Norwich became clear to me. Sin will be no shame but honor. He said it provided him this opportunity, God, this opportunity to show him mercy because that's his greatest delight, to show you his mercies in the midst of your sin, in the midst of your brokenness, just like this man beside the road that the Samaritan helps. Jesus is the Samaritan. That's the point of that story. It's his delight to cross the road and come to you and express himself to you with generosity and love. And I, I just, I love that because it's God's exceeding excessive joy to show you mercy. He wants to do that. And as you view the ways he's done that, how he's shown you mercy, you will begin to understand his will for your life. And it will shape your response, okay? So that's mercy. In view of those, present yourself to God. Here's the second attitude. Well, actually, it's right there. In view of God's mercies, present yourself as a living sacrifice. This is verse 1b. Um, so the question, as I meditated on this earlier in the week, is what's a living sacrifice? Because... Uh, if you read it, it's actually weirder than it looks. <laughs> because the word sacrifice, if you read the Greek, is the word for killing. So here's the literal. Make your life a living killing. <laughs> like masochism. It's deliberately paradoxical. Um, and everybody reading this would know about sacrifices in the ancient Near East. Greeks, Romans, Hebrews. They happened all over the world. And they'd understand this idea of animals being killed like on an altar, like a stage like this as a way of um, presenting yourself to God. But to call it a living sacrifice would make no sense because that is, it does, it, you can't have a living sacrifice. That doesn't work. It's, and so that's Paul's way of kind of saying that your life in Christ, as you seek the will of God, is both like and unlike your previous life. It's like and unlike that. So it's unlike it because a living sacrifice 
is not bloody. If you can imagine this, well, actually, read Leviticus 3, 4, and 5 sometime. Man, if you like zombie movies and stuff, there's your chapter. And there's blood everywhere. Like, every, every sentence, there's blood. Like, the priests are going and just sprinkling blood everywhere. And it's really kind of, um, wow. I mean, it's really gross, but also kind of weird. There's, and, and the reason for that is that blood in the Old Testament is a symbol of God's atonement. It symbolized the sin of the people being covered. And this is from the story of the Passover in Exodus. If you remember that story, where Israel is told to paint their door their doorpost with blood of a, of a lamb. So this is the last sort of um, uh, plague. When God comes over Egypt and he's going to kill all the firstborn sons, he'll pass over the Israelite households. They'll live and they'll be able to go off into the promised land. And so from that tradition, because it worked, like it, it happens, the priests go, hey, well, let's just keep doing that. Let's cover the temple or the tabernacle with the blood as a way of saying to God, hide us from our sin. Forgive us, God. We are so sinful. It's a way of procuring forgiveness. So here's the thing. Bloody sacrifice is absolutely not consistent with Christianity. I mean, aren't you glad? <laughs> like, we don't do that here. Because uh, we don't come here with hopes, and, and I, hopefully you hear this, you don't come here with hopes that God will forgive you. That's just inconsistent with the Bible. There are traditions that still perform sacrifice. You say, I'm guilty, I've made mistakes, I've sinned, and then you acts of penance as a way of pleading for God's forgiveness. But we, this is, the Bible says that Jesus' life put an end to the need for sacrifice, just once and for all. Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice, the final sacrifice. There's no more need for blood. I mean, basically, it's, uh, this is like the woman at the well. He, there's the blood stopped our obsessive need for blood. We need blood. We need to be covered. We have a sense of shame about who we are. God says, it's done. You don't need to feel shame. Not in each other's presence, not in my presence. So when Paul says, present your life as a living sacrifice, it's a reminder that you're free. You're free from an overwhelming sense that you have from your own failures and your flaws because Christ lived and he died for you. And so you get to offer yourself living in gratitude, in response to what Jesus did. That's what a living sacrifice, you live in response. You're saying, God, thank you for your obedience to the cross. That's the first thing. That's what a living sacrifice and why it's unlike the previous way of living. There's another way it's not like it. In the Old Testament, once the sacrifice was offered, it was over. And so you brought your animal, you offered it, it's killed, it's dead. (laughs) And then you go home you know, until the next time. When you've accumulated so much guilt and shame that you go back to the temple seeking forgiveness. So you bring another animal. You bring more grain. You offer it. And here's the deal. A living sacrifice, it's a way of saying, as someone once said, the trouble with a living sacrifice is it's always crawling off the altar. (laughs) So you bring your animal and you go home and it follows you. (laughs) Oh, I offered you, you know? And so... To be, it's living. It means it's continual. It's constant. It's never over. And that can be both very weary, like, man, the Christian life. And that's why Jesus says it's costly. Uh, it, it means that every day, every hour, every moment, right now, you have to consciously and continually offer yourself to God. It's not once and done. It's not once a week. 
you know, on Sunday morning at 9.30. It's not once a year. It's life. It's, it's a life. It's very different from the old life you used to live. You have to continually offer it to God. So that's how a living sacrifice is different. But there's a way that it's very similar. And I want to highlight this real quick. It's just like the old system. In particular, Paul wouldn't have used this word sacrifice unless something, something needed to be put to death. So what was that something that needed to die? It's a living sacrifice. It's a, it's a living killing. Um, and I'm going to tell you what it is. You're not living the Christian life right now. And you're not going to understand the will of God in your life unless you put to death the idea that you get to live your life however you choose. You're not going to understand God's will for your life unless you put to death the idea that you get to live your life however you choose. And, you know, that's a radical idea in Seattle in 2019 because we value independence and freedom of choice and, like, living our lives the way we want to live our lives. Like, you live the way you want to live. I'm going to live the way I live. And it's all good, right? It's all good. I mean, how many of you are in conversations with people like that? And that does not mesh, just like earlier, it does not mesh with the Christian life at all. Because what it means to follow Christ is you put to death your right to choose. You put to death the idea that you belong to yourself. You put to death the idea that you know best what should happen in the next moment, what God's will is for your life. You put to death and you give it to God. You say, not my life, not my plans, not my desires, not my expectations, not my goals. Just like that prayer Jesus prayed, not my will, Yours, your will be done. So, wow. <laughs> like, that's, if you do that, and I don't think I've fully done it because I haven't felt it, but the weight of it will feel like a death, like a death to your goals and your dreams and your plans and your desires. If you go through that process, it will feel like a death, but the promise here, it's a living sacrifice. It will always, and I, you know, be careful using always and never, but it will always lead to life. Always. That's the promise here. Uh, there's a guy named John Kurt Gerstner, he was a professor back east in Pennsylvania where I, I used to pastor like back in the 80s and a uh, powerful preacher, like Presbyterian deep voice, you know, and very unlike me. But he has this old sermon on Romans 12 and he relates the story of a missionary in the Presbyterian church named Julia Lake Kellersberger. She was a missionary to these leper colonies in the Congo and, and Angola in the 40s and 50s. And uh, he's trying to get the idea across of what it means to be a living sacrifice. And he, he tells a story that prior, for, prior to her going to the mission field, um, she was like 15 or 16, uh, she had this encounter with God at a Christian conference where she gave her life to Christ. She came to the uh, altar and she prayed and received Christ. And with great conviction, she realized that night, 15, 16 years old, I want to be a missionary with my whole life. And some of you who are missionaries who I know here maybe had a similar experience. She dedicates her life to mission work. Maybe not that age, but I mean, you get the point. And so she's convinced that night she's supposed to be a missionary. And here's the deal. She's convinced she was supposed to get, be a missionary in China. That's how specific this vision was for her. I mean, you have to keep in mind, it's like the 1930s. And she's an American girl, single, 15, China. If you know history at all, that's a radical idea to get in your head. And so Gerstner goes on to share this story that she, then years go by. She goes to high school. She keeps her resolve just an American girl going to high school. She learns how dangerous it is to go into the mission field. She learns how different and dangerous maybe China is. Um, until this day where she decides, I'm going to apply to go do this. She applies to this mission agency, and they say they're going to take her. Um, she's now like 18, 19. 
And they tell her there's only two prerequisites. prerequisites. One, you have to get training. You have to go to missionary training school. So Bible, theology, history, culture, language, all that. And two, marriage. You have to have a husband. Um, And this is the, you know, again, 40s, 50s. So you couldn't go into the mission field, especially as a young woman, single. You had to have a husband. Just keep that. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. Don't, this is not my, I'm just relating the story. It's just, it just is. And it's actually the, the point of the story, so hang with me. So w- one night at the end of high school, she's applied, and she's actually starting to feel kind of discouraged. So she prays this prayer that I've prayed here before, Lord, I take my hands off my life. That's actually where that prayer came from, is Julia Lake Kellersberger. She says, Lord, I give you everything. I don't care what all my friends are going to do. I don't care about a comfortable life, a safe life. I give you my whole life. I take my hands off my life and I give myself to you. And I just need one thing, a husband. And that's her prayer. I just read her prayer. So um, she goes out to Bible college, four years of Bible college, prepares. And when she's done with that, missionary training school, which is kind of like seminary, three years of that. After Bible college, no husband, no boyfriend, no prospects, grad school, missionary training school, no husband, no boyfriend, no prospects. And then so this one night, she's actually about to graduate from her seminary experience, and she can't go to the mission field. She's deep conviction, this is supposed to happen. China, no husband. And so she's in her dorm room, and she says in her, in her writings, she's utterly, utterly devastated and totally disillusioned toward God. Because she says, God, how could you do this to me? I, I went down this career path, I give up everything for you. I've been faithful, obedient. I have nothing else I can do with my life, literally. My training is so specific, China missionary, that I can't do anything else. And I only ask for one thing. One thing, God. (laughs) And of course, you can hear the punchline. This led her her to realize something, that she'd been lying and kidding herself. Um, She realized that she wasn't miserable because she'd taken her hands off her life. She was miserable because she never had. She'd been holding on so tightly to this idea of what a heroic life actually looked like, that this noble life, if I could just live this life, I'd have value in the world, I'd have worth to God, I'd know I'd have done something in the world. I'd made a difference. And so she was telling God, God, here's what it has to look like, and you have to do this for me for that to happen. And so she prayed a new prayer uh, that night in her dorm room on her knees. For the first time, she said, God, palms up. Hands empty, heart open. Palms up, hands empty, heart open. She just let go of her life. And so then Gerstner, remember I'm telling you a story from a sermon. This Presbyterian guy, pastor, he's preaching. If you listen to the sermon, you can find it online. It's kind of grainy tape. He looks at this crowd. It's like students. I think it's students. He says, if 23-year-old Julia Lake Kellersberger, who spent a third of her life, third of her life preparing for missionary work in China, saying goodbye to everything, friendships, fun, safety, comfort, opportunities, had thought she'd taken her hands off her life and realized that night she had not. She was actually attempting to manipulate and control God. He says, if that's true of her, where do you come in? What's true of you? If she felt like she had, after all those years, never really offered herself to God, have you? Have you said, now I'm asking you now, have you? Have you said no conditions, God? No ifs, no ands, no buts? Because if you're saying if, and I do this with you all the time, if God then, like if, I, if you do this, or if I can get this, if I can go there, then God. Whether that's a step up in your career, a step forward in a relationship, a step out into a fulfillment of a dream, 
Whatever comes on the other side of that if (laughs) is your God. That's your God. You haven't taken your hands off your life. And that's and that's what it means to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. To say, God, palms up. No ifs, no ands, no buts. Hands empty, heart open. Um, and so that's, that's what it means to offer yourself as a living sacrifice. So let me ask you a question real quick to think about, and we're going to respond with this. Um, what in your life do you need to take your hands off of right now? What in your life do you need to let go of and say, God... Um, Palms up, you know, hands empty, heart open. Um, Be thinking about that. Real quick, last thing, as you think about that, uh, because this is probably the thing you guys thought I was going to talk about, where Wall says, do not be conformed, but be transformed. Um, The J.B. Phillips, I love the translation, so let me read this again. Don't let the world squeeze you into its own mold, but let God remold you from within. Um, there's so many things I could say here, but I, all I want to say here is that um, when he says, do not let the world squeeze you, but instead let God remold you, the key word here is to let. Uh, it, both those words, if you read it in Greek sometime, are middle voice imperatives. And imperatives mean, don't do this, do this. Don't let, let. It's like with an exclamation point, maybe four. Uh, middle voice, though, is this weird tense of a verb that we just lack in English. It's very unclear to us. Uh, there was this book I read with Elizabeth, my wife, years ago by this woman named Lauren Winner. And um, it's called Still, colon, Notes on a Mid-Faith Crisis. And she's a, she was a prominent evangelical speaker and author and then went through a divorce. And she taught at University of Virginia in Richmond and um, was kind of exiled from that community for a time, and so wrote this book because she went through like an identity crisis, a mid-faith crisis, as she talks about. Really fascinating book. Um, She has a chapter in there called Middle Voice, and she's relating this story of leaving her Greek language class in seminary, overhearing other students kind of just learning about the middle voice, very dazed and confused, saying, I just don't get it. I don't get the need for the middle voice. And so this is this young woman in a purple skirt she's talking about. And she looks over and says, either do I. I've never, been under, I've never understood, and this is her again, the middle voice, which we just don't have in English. But in Greek, in Hebrew, in Norse, in Creek, it's actually the most important thing. The middle voice, she says, darts back and forth between active and passive when you're somewhere between the agent and the one acted upon when you have something done to you. For example, she says, I will have myself carried. I will have myself saved. And then in terms of Romans 12, I will let God remold me. Um, All of which are distinctly un-American frames of mind, but very biblical. Here's Lauren Winter again. The middle verbs are distinctly religious. They are the very actions that constitute the religious life. To forgive, to imagine, to grow, to yearn to lament, to meet, to kneel, to have one's body doused in the waters of baptism, to ponder, all of which suggest to to me the middle is the language of spirituality, devotion, of religious choreography. It's the middle voice that captures the strange ways activity and passivity dance together. 
It's the voice that tells you that you're changed when you do these things. There's something about you that is happening and happening to you. And the voice that insists that it's another doing it. You don't do it to yourself. That you're affected by the action of another, the verb. And transformed and reshaped by that as the subject. Do not let the world squeeze you into its own mold. Instead, let God remold you from within so that you might understand God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will for your life. And so here's, the, here's what I want to do. Practice that a little bit this morning as our response. When you came in, you might have seen somebody open the book for us. There, this one has... I, <laughs> Trace my hands. They're fat. Um, I've got really like farmer hands here, sorry. But uh, just go with me here. So I apologize if that's like, wow, it's a big hand. Um, I want to practice the middle voice with you this morning. I asked the question a few minutes ago, what in your life do you need to take your hands off of? Could be an outcome and a prayer that you prayed. Could be something in your future. Could be a relationship, your children's destiny, your future, however you want to put it, your own, your hopes. What in your life do you need to let go of? And let God reshape you and remold you from within. Uh, Asking God, what do you have for me? Where do you want to take me? What are your dreams? How do you see me? Um, What's your will for my life? And so this morning, what I want to invite you to do is to, in thinking of that question, there's a couple ways you can respond. You could be so bold as to come up. There's some pens here and just write. It's a word. It could be a phrase in these little prayer journals. Our staff would be so grateful to pray for you this week. You could, there's a little tear-off section in your bulletin. You could write it down and keep it for yourself. Tuck it into Romans 12. Or you could just sit there with your palms up as we worship God and let God minister to you in that space. Any of those are, are, are great. And I would love for us to respond in whatever way God leads us. All right? We'll invite our worship leaders back up.